rose from the dead. And decades later, John wrote his gospel. And he gives us the reason why he wrote his gospel in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, John tells us his purpose for writing the book. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. This is what John says. He said that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these ones are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John took all of the body of miracles and teachings of Jesus and reduced them down to seven signs in the Gospel of John and uh, arranged his Gospel around seven statements also that you would believe in two ways. Uh, he says that you would believe, uh, that is, understand intellectually, that you would be convinced in your mind that Jesus is more than just a mere man, that, he's, uh, that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and that he's also God. So he wants you to be convinced in your mind. That's where it starts, but that's not where it ends. John wants you to be believing in your mind who Jesus is, but he also wants uh, that second use of the belief phrase in John 20, 31, by believing that you would have life. See, it's not just intellectual understanding that allows us to have life. It is through total surrender to Jesus Christ in faith. That's what John's purpose is. He wants you to believe in your mind. He wants you to be convinced that Jesus is the Christ, but he also wants you to uh, surrender to Jesus. James tells us that even the demons believe in Jesus. That is, even the demons acknowledge intellectually who Jesus is, but they are not saved because they fail to what? To surrender. To surrender their faith and trust. To surrender their life and will. And so John makes this recognition that belief uh, requires a surrender on our part. Recently, I flew on an airplane, and I remember walking down the, the, the jetway kind of thing that uh, comes up to the plane, and, 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 uh, and, and as I got to the edge of that jetway, I had a choice to make. All right, I believe that this plane will lift off and take me where I need to go, um, but it's one thing for me to acknowledge that in my mind. It's another thing for me to take that step over that little crack thing that I'm always wondering, can I, can I fall through there? I doubt it, but, but I don't know, maybe I could. Um, is this safe? There's always kind of an element of faith and trust as you step onto, and so that's what we're talking about here is that sort of surrender, that sort of faith, that sort of trust that doesn't just acknowledge something intellectually, but also surrenders to it. John writes so that we would do that. And so we've been talking about the different I am statements, knowing that I am, that little phrase, ego, I, me, remember from Exodus chapter 3, Moses walks up to the burning bush, and he sees that the bush is not consumed, although it's on fire, and God speaks to him through the bush, and, and he gives him all these commands, and he tells him uh, what he's supposed to do as an 80-year-old, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to rescue the Israelites, and, and, and I want you to deliver them um, out of slavery into the promise land. And, and Moses says, I, I don't even, what, who am I supposed to say sent them? If they say, well, I, we don't even know this God, what is your name? What should we tell them who you are? And God answers, I am who I am. 
And that little phrase, ego I me, I am. Jesus picks up on that. And he, by using that phrase, Jesus equates himself with God. So we've been exploring those statements. Today's I am statement, I am the light of the world, falls right after, in John chapter 8, that little episode of the woman who was caught in adultery. Do you remember that story? And all the, the Jews want to stone her. This is right there in the temple. Um, they see Jesus teaching in the treasury right by the court of the women. And just right a few yards beyond there is a place where the priestly council meets. And they were taking that woman to be confronted and condemned before that council. Stopped by Jesus. And that whole part there, uh, many of your Bibles will say this, the oldest and most reliable manuscripts do not include this section, uh, chapter 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, verse 11. Um, we, I preached a sermon from it uh, maybe a few months ago, maybe in February or so, about the woman caught in adultery. Uh, Carly Weiss went over it with uh, um, the North Care Women's Clinic when they spoke at our prayer and fasting night, um, uh, seeing this as a third way to demonstrate grace. And, and so it's a text that we benefit from, although many manuscripts don't include it. The most reliable and most ancient manuscripts end with 752. And so for our purposes, that helps us understand the chronology and the context of what's happening here. So let me give you some context, and then let's get into the statement, I am the light of the world. We're six months before the crucifixion right here. It's September, October. That's when the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Shelters. It was always supposed to happen at that time. It's an eight-day festival. All Israel was required to come and they were required to, to put up these little shacks all over the streets and outskirts of Jerusalem. And this eight-day festival was to commemorate the wilderness wandering, that they didn't have homes to dwell in and that they lived in these temporary shelters. They were sojourners throughout the wilderness. And so this eight-day feast that they celebrated every year, um, they would um, build these temporary shelters and they would live in them for eight days. And each day uh, they would commemorate different aspects of the wilderness wandering. The first day and the eighth day were the most important. The first day kicked it off with certain ceremonies uh, and sacrifices and so did the eighth day. So six months away from that, we read in the early part of John chapter 7, Jesus' brothers say, hey, listen, if you want to be somebody, uh, they don't believe in him. Jesus' own brothers, uh, they don't believe in him. And, and so they said, listen, if you really want to be a public figure, if you really want to have disciples, stop doing this in secret, you need to go to the festival. You need to go up to the feast. And Jesus said, well, my time has not yet come. Uh, and so he says, you guys can go, but I'm not going to go at, at this moment. And then he, he shows up halfway through the feast. And in the middle of the feast, with all of Israel gathered in the temple area, Jesus begins to teach. And the Jews are amazed by his teaching. And the crowds begin to react to Jesus. Some of them believe. It says many people believed in his name, but he was divisive. Many people believed, but some people said, uh, I, I refuse to believe, and they want to arrest him, and they want him killed, because they understood that he was making these bold claims. By the way, it's very difficult 
for anyone to say, I, I think Jesus was a good man. I think he was a good teacher. I think he was a, a noble person. I don't think he was God, but I think he was a noble, good person that, that we should follow his example. Many people will kind of give a worldly kind of sentiment to Jesus, sort of like we would with like a, you know, a Gandhi or some other political figure or somebody, um, Nelson Mandela or something like that, that we would equate a good person, but not God. Listen, Jesus doesn't give you room for that. Um, He claims to be from heaven eight times in John chapter eight. He claims to be equal with God. And this is not the kind of person that you would say is a good person. This is the the kind of person, as C.S. Lewis put, is either a liar or a lunatic or he's the Lord. Jesus doesn't give you the room to say he's just a good man. He, he forces you into a position by his teaching and by his words and a bold proclamation that he is equal to God and that he is the Messiah. And so during this festival, starting in the midweek, on the fourth day or so, Jesus starts to teach. And during this festival, everyone keeps coming to him and they're amazed by him. Well, During this eight days of the festival, for the first seven days, the priests would march through the city and parade uh, around these booths and they would gather water and they would take that water and they would sing and they would travel through the city uh, amongst the people and all the people would participate and that was to demonstrate that God provided water. They would do that every day, seven days throughout Jerusalem. But on the eighth day, they didn't do that, showing that they no longer needed the provision of God's water. And so what does Jesus do on the eighth day? It says in John 7, 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is saying, the water that God provided for you in the desert, I am able to provide greater than that. Rivers of living water coming out of you. And this he used to describe the Holy Spirit that would be given in Acts chapter uh, 1 or, and 2 with the, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This produced more division from the crowds, more belief, more confusion, um, and they sought to arrest him. They sought to send officers. The officers at the end, remember at the end of chapter 7, the officers were sent out to dispatch to arrest Jesus. But in chapter 7, verse 45, the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, why didn't you bring him? Why didn't you arrest him? Why, where is he? They're looking for Jesus. And they sent their temple officers to arrest him. And the, the temple officers said in seven, chapter 7, verse 46, no one talks like this guy does. We've never heard anybody speak like this man. The Pharisees said, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But the crowd that does not know the law, they're cursed. And then Nicodemus <clears throat> stands up to defend. And we, we know from John 3 that Nicodemus, one of the high, uh, the members of the Pharisee party, uh, a ranking member, a respected member, had previously believed in Jesus. Then we skip the section about the woman caught in adultery. And we end with chapter seven fifty two. And we skip down to chapter 8, verse 12. If we skip that episode that is not included in most of the uh, more reliable manuscripts, then we see that this happens on the same day 
in the same place. And so let's read our focal passage for today. John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. That's another claim that he came from heaven and he's going back there. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Uh, Coincidentally, Jesus at this time did not come to judge. John 3.17 says, but God sent his son into the world. Save the world. You know that John 3.16 verse 17. But he said he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, uh, but that the world would be saved. Jesus will come to judge in the end, but at this time he is not here to judge. Verse 15, he says, You judge according to the flesh, but I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. This back and forth between the Pharisees about the testimony, uh, Jesus is allowing an element of faith and trust. Sure, you see that it's just me testifying about myself. Sure, in our law, it says that two must testify. And he's saying that these things that the Father is doing through me, they testify that God is bearing his seal of approval on me. And also the words that I speak and the actions that I do bear witness. And so Jesus is claiming that his testimony is true, but it requires a step of faith on their part to trust that. Verse 20, he says, uh, gives us a setting note and a theological note. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, get into this small section and understand the light better. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your word says in 1 John 1 that, that you are the light, and in you there is no darkness at all. We thank you that your word tells us in Genesis 1 that you created the light, Even before the sun and the moon were created on the fourth day, light existed. We thank you that in Revelation 20, you tell us that the new Jerusalem has no need for a sun or a moon because the the glory of God gives it light. We thank you that all throughout Scripture, light demonstrates your purity, light demonstrates your presence, your purposes, we understand that light represents all things good about you. Yet we also understand, as Ephesians, Paul describes that we were once people who walked in darkness, groping around in confusion, lost, without peace, without purpose, living as enemies and in hostility to you, God. 
We thank you, Jesus, that you, the light of the world, have come that we may have peace and that we may follow you. Would you use your word this morning to challenge us and to change us? In Jesus' name, amen. Do you, uh, do you have any times when you stumbled in the dark? Uh, I, I don't particularly like walking in darkness. Um, there was a time a few years ago where I had uh, meniscus surgery. I tore my meniscus on both sides of my right knee uh, playing basketball. Uh, my career ended. I know it's sad. Um, season ending um, rec ball surgery. And, and after that surgery took place, uh, I, I, for a week or so, I had to walk on a cane and, and the stitches on both sides were uh, tender. And, and I remember I, I used to office when Ridgeline was still kind of an early church plant, um, right above uh, Larry's son's office um, over in Souderton. There's a Moyer Specialty Foods and, and above that there's like a three or four office suite that we rented as Ridgeline did long before I even knew Larry or, or Rock Hill. And, and it's got a kind of a narrow stairway. And I remember in the few days after that surgery, not even wanting to go to work. I didn't want to hobble up those steps. And, um, and, and then after I got a little bit more comfortable, I did. And, and, and yet one night I was there after a meeting and it was, it was uh, dark and I was on my way down. And I remember having to take that cane and, um, and sort of sidestep down that narrow, holding the banister and everything. And I knew how many steps there were. I counted them down to that first landing. And then once I made that turn, I knew that there were three steps. And so I took a step and counted it, even though I was on the landing. <laughs> and, uh, and then I took another step and counted it, and that was two. And then I, I took one step expecting to find the floor, and, and I, um, I missed it stumbled on the step and landed right on that knee, right on that, tore the stitches and, and just landed right there on my face. The cane went flying everywhere and sort of down this hallway. And I just sort of laid there on the ground. I mean, probably four or five minutes, um, just breathing into the linoleum. <laughs> There's dust everywhere. And, and, um, and I just could not move. And, and I was just sitting there thinking, well, I guess I have surgery again. And, um, and it was just one of those kind of painful things. But, but me stumbling during that period of time, it didn't always require darkness, but with that cane. But in the dark, I, didn't, I just had no confidence. I seemed to be confused. I didn't have my bearings. I, was, uh, I just was um, unstable. Have you ever walked through a period of instability, whether it's mentally or emotionally or, or physically, where you just, you just didn't have the confidence that you once had? I've stumbled many times in the darkness. I've got five or six good stories here that I, I was selecting from here. Um, one of the times, uh, I'll share one more darkness story. Uh, when Julie and I very first got married, I lived next to <laughs> uh, this big church that I worked at, and they gave us this little um, house to live in. And, and part of our arrangement of being on the property was that, you know, if something went wrong in the middle of the night, uh, they would call me and I would have to go settle it. And, and so one night during storms or whatever, an alarm went off and I had to go reset the alarm. And, and I didn't at this time, I was like 25 or 26, and I just thought, the darkness doesn't bother me at all. And so I would walk really loud and really confidently through that huge church. And I would imagine in my mind, if somebody was in there, 
Um, I wouldn't panic. It wouldn't bother me. Uh, I would, you know, lay him out if it was a bad guy, right? I, would, I had all this kind of false bravado in my mind that bolster myself up because who knows what tripped the alarm. It could have been a burglar. It could have been somebody there. So, so I would kind of puff my chest up and act like I knew what I was doing. And, and so on one occasion, I'm walking through the, the hallways trying to find, it's a huge building, I'm trying to find out what tripped the alarm and to reset the alarm. And, and as I, I, I round one corner, I find myself running into um, this little Hispanic lady's cleaning cart. And, and in the next moment, I think, why is she screaming like that? And then I realize, that's oh, not her, that's me. And I realize, not only am I screaming, but I'm kind of on the ground in like this weird tucked position and 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 she was fine she didn't it didn't bother her one bit I, I don't know if she heard me coming or saw me but but um you know sometimes in our mind we're different than we are in real life but that story of kind of walking through the darkness not being able to see not being able to understand what's around the corner that sort of darkness depicts the worldly state that people walk through when they don't have the light of life, when they don't have Christ, when they don't have your word is a lamp to my feet. It shows me where to take each step. Uh, it gives us confidence in how to walk in this world, knowing that we're following this, uh, just like the Israelites followed the, uh, the pillar of fire by night in the wilderness wanderings and the, the cloud by day. We are to follow this light of life. The point of our passage, Jesus uses the phrase, I am, to cement his claim that he is God and to cement his claim that he is the Messiah. He attaches the words, I am the light of the world, to further cement his claim and to explain what he means by light. So let's get back into our text briefly, and we're only going to really focus on two passages here. Uh, verse 20, it says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This gives us a setting note about what's happening, where he is, but it also gives us a theological note. He taught in the treasury in the temple, and no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So let's understand those two things before we understand the light. Where's the treasury? What is its significance? Well, you've probably seen pictures of the temple complex in this rectangular form with large flat galleries where the court of the Gentiles were and they were able to come in and be as close to God as they were allowed on the side portions. And then there were steps leading up to outer courts, leading into the inner court, leading into the temple itself, leading to the holy place, and then leading to what? to the most holy place, the, the, the inner area where the ark of God was and the presence of God was, that the priest, the high priest could only enter once a year. So think in your mind of all those different um, regions outside of the temple. The furthest outermost court was the court of the Gentiles, uh, where Jesus made a cord of whips and he, he drove out all the money changers because they were uh, taking that place that was supposed to be for the Gentiles to worship and they were making it into a place to buy and sell. 
So Jesus drove them out. But then think as they walked in, there was the next court, which was called the court of the women. And in the court of the women was a large place. Jesus regularly taught there. You think about a couple of times when Jesus mentioned, I think in Luke 14 and in Mark chapter 8, that, um, that Jesus sat opposite of the treasury and he watched and, and he told his disciples when he saw a widow give two copper coins. Do you remember that story? And he said she gave out of her poverty all that she had and everybody else was giving. Jesus regularly sat there. Why? It's a high traffic area. There were 13 <clears throat> uh, trumpet-shaped offering boxes. I don't know if you have this vision in your mind. When I drive um, in the Midwest, there are these turnpikes. And here you just have the thing over above that reads the, you know, the scanner thing that tells you, you know, you can go through the gates. Um, in different places, they have these big funnels, and, and you have to toss ch- coins into those funnels. Have you seen those funnels? One time I had like $4 in dimes and nickels, and, and I thought, I'm just going to roll slowly through and toss them all in there, and just to see if it holds it. And I tossed them, and I m- missed half the funnel, and had to pull over and gather all the coins out, and um, that's what these funnels were like. They were these big uh, trumpet shape that funneled down, and there were 13 of them. Each one was a different box that um, represented a different kind of offering, and they kept that in the court of the women so that in the next place, there was only a place where only men could go, and then there was the high priest and the holy of holies, all of those places. So in this big court where all the Israelites would come, they would have to bring their offerings. There are all these offerings that are required. I may be spending too much time on this. But Jesus um, is in this place where the largest crowd would be. It's likely an open area, lots of foot traffic in the temple complex. And Jesus publicly taught here. That's where all of John chapter 7, most of those teachings take place in the temple. And Jesus sat there and taught publicly. Now listen, being in this place has significance according to a rabbinical teaching Jesus could have just said, I am the light. Uh, The MacArthur commentary helps us understand this better, though. Uh, We understand um, that Jesus saying, I am the light, had a a metaphorical significance, right? We could have all just been walking in darkness. Ephesians says that we walk in darkness, the way of the wicked is darkness. The foolish heart is darkened. We are darkened in our understanding and excluding. It's a frequent expression that darkness describes the way people walk in this world. And Jesus could have said, I am the light, and that would have made sense. But, but it makes more significance when you understand the treasury and the feast. So let me explain it the way MacArthur helped me understand. There's more than that going on here, he says, far more. When the Feast of Tabernacles began, candelabras were set up all throughout the court of the women. Candelabras were lit And as far as the historians say, they literally filled this court of women with the capability of light. Every night they would go around and they would light these large candles and they would burn all night. Now this is before, obviously, electricity. When we visited Israel and we went and saw um, in in, um, north of what's now Tel Aviv, uh, this big amphitheater, um, they said that they would do all the plays and all the shows uh, and all the concert kind of events in the morning when the light was best, not at midday when it's hot, not in the evening because it would get dark. 
And it just dawned on me in that moment that I thought, oh yeah, I guess they don't have spotlights. And they couldn't all just bring a candle. That would not be a very good show if you couldn't see. So they would do their shows early in the morning. And so to have nighttime illumination really stood out. Have you ever been in a really dark place? A few years ago, we went to some cave north of here on a school field trip, and you know what they were going to do, and I knew they were going to do it. I didn't like it at all, but they said, all right, on the count of three, everybody turn off your lights, and we're going to turn off all the lights in the cave, and, and we want you to see what dark, dark looks like, and they did it, and it was dark, dark. That kind of illumination against darkness makes a huge difference. So when all these candelabras are lit, every night they go around, they light these large candles, they burn all night. Um, this was actually called by the Jews the illumination of the temple. They would bounce light all over that temple complex. So all around the city, you could see the temple lit up, the presence of God lit up. And they did this, remember this feast, the tabernacle celebrates what? Celebrates them wandering in the desert, wandering in the wilderness, following the light. What were they led by? They were led by a pillar of fire. They were led by the fire at night and the lighted cloud in the daytime. And so this candelabra signified that. So to commemorate that, they lit, had this illumination of the temple. They lit these candles. They burned all night. And Jesus standing there around all of those candelabras, maybe they were just lighting them, maybe it was getting into evening, maybe they had just extinguished them from the night, but it, it still makes sense when in that area, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and my light never goes out. If you follow me, you will never walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. It's a profound moment. And it helps us understand what he means in two ways. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, we understand that light's created by God on day one, even before the sun was created on day four. We understand in Jerusalem there's no sun or moon because God gives light. That's Revelation 21, verses 22 through 25. He says, I saw no temple in the city, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut. That's, that's the big biblical understanding of light, is that it emanates from the glory of God. But light also has a messianic significance. See, the Jews were waiting for the Messiah. In Isaiah 49.6, the prophet speaking about the Messiah says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant? that you shall also raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Now, who's that about? It's Isaiah writing 700 years before Christ saying, I will raise you up to deliver the tribes and you will be a light for the nations and by your light, salvation will reach the end of the earth. Light is one of John's favorite descriptions of Jesus, mentioned 23 times in the Gospel of John. But light was not just only a messianic title. Light was also equivalent to God himself. In Psalm 27.1, He is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he attaches it to messianic significance. I'm the Messiah that you've been waiting for. He also attaches it to God himself. God is light. In him there is no darkness. We read that in 1 John 1.5, or in the prayer I prayed that. We understand all throughout Scripture that God is light. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for Jesus to be the light for, for you? What does it mean? How do you walk in the light? How does this change your view of Jesus? Well, he says to them, I am the light of the world, in verse 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I want you to see those four parts to that proclamation. His proclamation, I am the light of the world. Then whoever follows me, that's that volitional surrender that John is talking about, that surrendering your will and faith, following Jesus. Then he says they will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we've already heard here that Jesus, the light of the world, means that he's God and Messiah. Uh, It means he has the authority. You can't read John chapter 8 without hearing that. Um, Jesus claims authority all throughout John 8. He forgives the woman caught in adultery. He claims to be Messiah, claims to be eternal, claims to be the light of the world. He claims to give light to all who follow him. He says that his testimony about himself is true, even though no one can vouch for him. He says the Father bears witness about who he is. He says he's from above. Eight times in this chapter, he says he's from heaven. Eight times. He says you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am the Messiah. And you will know that I am the Messiah when you have lifted up the Son of Man. He says, I do everything that the the Father told me to do with the authority that God gave me. He said, I always please God the Father. Now, who who else could say that? He says, if you abide in me, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He says that if I, the Son, set you free, you will be free indeed. He says that there's not one of you who can convict me of any sin He says, you can't hear me because you don't hear God's words. He says, to keep my word and you'll never uh, taste death. He said, God the Father glorifies me. He says, I know God the Father, but you don't. He said, Abraham rejoiced about seeing me and that Abraham saw him and he was glad because before Abraham existed, I am. Listen, there's no mistaking what Jesus is doing and what he is saying here. But what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? If he's God, and if he's the Messiah, and if he has this authority, it means that we should follow him in surrender. It means that we should follow him in faith and surrender. Just like the Israelites followed the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day in the wilderness, it says he will not lead you in darkness. Darkness is often characterized by evil and wickedness, confusion, defiance, stubbornness, hostility toward God, being an enemy of God. You don't have, you don't really need me to give you a lot of examples of what darkness is characterized by. You just have to look at the news. 
Uh, you have to watch the evening news and, and see the, uh, the, you know, even just this past week with the hint that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. What did it do? It surfaced people who are committed, committed to making that a federal law. Darkness is all around us. It's, it's depicted by confusion and by a, a willingness. And Jesus said it easily in, in John 3 that light has come into the world, but men loved darkness. Oh, I, I never quite understand. And I, you may have read this. This isn't in my notes, but I, I've never quite understood in Revelation how when the bowls are being poured out and the trumpets are being blown and, and the seals are being broken, uh, when all of these things are happening, at the end of Revelation 9, I have this note highlighted and exclamation marked everywhere in my, my, my passage here. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by all the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor did they give up worshiping demons, of idols and gold and silver and bronze and stone, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murdering or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. That's staggering to me because God has poured out clear condemnation in the chapters before Revelation 9. He has demonstrated himself. Some people think, ah, if just God would show himself to me, then I would believe. Listen, that's not true. Men, women love darkness and refuse to come into the light. They refuse to come into the light. Following in surrender means leaving that life of darkness. Not walking in dark places any longer. Not walking in confusion or doubt, but walking by the light of life. I'll close with this thought. C.S. Lewis wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. By claiming to be the light of the world, Jesus is saying, only by me can you see and understand everything else. See, in Genesis 1, you have in the creation, the first, first chapter, you have force, time, matter, space. You have everything you need for a philosophical worldview. Jews don't have questions. Early Jews, they don't have philosophical thoughts. They, they understand that there's a force, there's a person, there's a time, there's a space, there's matter. There's all of the building blocks for any philosophical worldview, the question for good and evil, it's all right there. You just have to read three chapters to understand an entire biblical worldview. That's understanding the light and understanding everything through the lens of that light. And so when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he's saying, only by me can you see and understand everything else in the world. Only by me can you see and understand things. Apart from Jesus, this world is simply unknowable. We see in parts and they only make sense when we see them through the light of life. Listen, your life will only make sense when you see it through the light of Christ. When you submit in full surrender, the light illuminates your heart and your life, and you are able to walk no longer in darkness, but in light. So Lord Jesus, as we understand, as we understand your 
command and your authority, as we understand your proclamation about who you are, help us not just to acknowledge it with our mind, but to also surrender our will. Even in Revelation 9, when they see who you are over and over and over again, with every trumpet blast, with every bowl poured out, with every seal broken, men refuse to repent because their deeds are dark. And they love the darkness. Lord Jesus, your people, though, are characterized by those who have been called out of darkness into light. And may we ever walk in that light, that we may also be a light to the world. Give us grace and strength to stand on the commitment and faith and the proclamation that we have made before others. Not only that Jesus is the Christ, but that we will surrender and follow him. And we ask it in his name. Amen.